Amen. We preach Christ crucified. To those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. That is the the idea that we're going to look at today in the book of Galatians, the idea of preaching Christ crucified. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. We'll look in the second chapter and we'll focus on verses 15 through 21 this morning. Galatians 2 verses 15 through 21. And we're continuing a section that we started last week. We began looking at this under the title of Contending for the Faith. Contending for the Faith. And last week, we saw the idea of opposing falsehood. And we said that there are two sides to that coin. We contend for the faith by opposing falsehood. And today, we'll look at, in verses 15 through 21, the idea of proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ. So let's read our text. We want to back up to verse 11 and read this whole section. And then we need to go before the Lord, ask him to bless our time together this morning, and then we'll dive into God's word. So Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. This is the living word of God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined with him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, No flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we gather together now under the authority of your word, Lord, we understand and recognize that this is a point at which the strength and the power and the persuasion of men utterly fails. 
Lord, it is only by the working of your Holy Spirit that our time under your word will be of any value, of any gain. So, Lord, I pray that we would put aside all distractions, that we would focus our hearts and our minds and even our eyes on the truth of your word. Lord, we gather with open Bibles for a reason. That is because your, your word is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. So, Lord, may we, may we look unto what you have written and revealed to us. Lord, would your spirit come and open our minds to understand the truth before us. Lord, may we understand the importance of the idea of justification by faith alone and in Christ alone. Lord, may we understand the importance of contending earnestly for the faith. May we understand that the end of this study is not that we are stronger in our doctrine, but that we're stronger in our knowledge of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us. Help us to, to have humble and eager hearts when it comes to your word. Help us to eagerly desire to understand and apply the truth. Lord, for your word is the source of godliness and sanctification. It is what the Spirit uses to conform us to the person into the image of Jesus Christ. So please, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive and apply the truth. Lord, we need your help. We are completely and utterly dependent upon you, upon your spirit to move among us today. Lord, would you receive all glory and all honor, and all praise as we gather under the preaching and teaching, under the authority of your word. I ask this in the name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last time, again, we began this section looking at verses 11 through 14, the idea of opposing falsehood. Paul told of how he confronted Peter because Peter was living in a hypocritical legalism among the church at Antioch. Peter went there, he preached the gospel that you come to faith in Christ, you lay aside the works of the law, you lay aside the deeds of the law, the necessity of the law, and you come to Christ by faith. That was what Peter had preached. But then upon pressure, and more pressure, and more pressure from the Judaizers, Peter relented to what they had said. He decided to change the way that he was living. When these men came, up, came and they, they said, we come on the authority of James, likely lying about James even sending them, Peter decided to change how he lived. He withdrew from the Gentiles, from those converted pagans who were now Christians. He withdrew from them because he was afraid of what the Judaizers would do. The Judaizers were men who had high reputation in Jerusalem. And when Peter went back to Jerusalem, he didn't want to have them at his throat. Peter saw firsthand what those Jews had done to Jesus. 
And quite frankly, I think he feared for his life. And so what did he do? He, he shrunk back. He lived hypocritically in such a way that even Barnabas, Barnabas who was Paul's right-hand man, not Peter's right-hand man, but Paul's right-hand man, even Barnabas decided to live hypocritically, to, to pull back from the Gentile Christians for fear of the Jews. And so we looked last week how Paul says that I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. There was direct knowledge against Peter and the way he was living. Paul said that he was not being straightforward. He was not walking a straight path about the gospel. He was not living parallel to the word of God. And so, so Paul rebuked him. And Paul says, I rebuked him in the presence of all. This was a public sin of Peter. It was a sin of deceit and hypocrisy. And so Paul says, I met him head on. I met him in the presence of everyone. I stood up and told him, Peter, you are condemned by your actions. And so we looked at that as a roadmap as to how we ought to oppose falsehood, especially within the church. That when there are public sins, those sins need to be exposed refuted and rebuked publicly. As we have this great goal, this great need to contend earnestly for the faith, we saw that the first side of that coin that Paul lays forth for us is to oppose falsehood. So now today we look at the other side of that coin. So we oppose falsehood and we preach Christ. We proclaim Christ. It's not enough just to stand against error but we must preach the truth of Christ. We said last week that Paul urges us to boldly stand against false gospels and against unbiblical teaching for the sake of the pure proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And this text before us today exemplifies that second half of that statement, the pure proclamation of the gospel. Paul sets us an example. He exhorts us by his example that we must contend for the faith by preaching the truth of salvation that is in Christ alone, that is through faith alone. So the gospel that we must proclaim is seen clearly in this text. That's what we're going to walk through today is what is the message that we proclaim as we contend earnestly for the faith. And I think what we see in this text is that we proclaim a message that one says we are justified by faith alone. Secondly, our message says that we are justified apart from the law, apart from works of the law. And then thirdly, we're going to see that we are justified only through unity with Christ. So that's the roadmap. That's what we're going to look at, that we're justified by faith that we're justified apart from the law, and we're justified because we are joined to Christ. We are crucified with Christ. So let's dive in to that first point, that we're justified by faith alone, seen especially in verses 15 through 16. Again, Paul says there, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus even we, even these Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
Now, I think MacArthur had a very helpful comment as we kind of launch into this section. He wrote that because of Paul's intense and emotional concern for the integrity of the gospel and the spiritual welfare of the Galatian believers, his grammar in this epistle is sometimes difficult to to reconstruct in the English. It's the logic is a little bit difficult to follow, but the point is always crystal clear. Paul's just so passionate about what he's writing about that he's just the ideas are are merging together. This idea, okay, we are justified by faith alone and we're justified apart from the works of the law. So the lines are a little bit blurry as we try to work through this, and that's why I wanted to give you the outline because these are individual points that we must know and we must understand. But again, Paul's point is crystal clear. Salvation for both the Jew and for the Gentile is through faith. It's through faith alone. It is apart from any works of the law, any keeping of ceremonial law, any keeping of the Ten Commandments, or anything else. Salvation is by faith alone. So Paul begins, he says that we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We being him and Peter and some of these other leaders probably in the Antioch church and certainly the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We are Jews by nature. We are Jewish. That reminds us of some of Paul's words throughout the New Testament. You think of Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, where he tells of his history as a Jew, where he tells about how he was a, a Hebrew among Hebrews. Philippians 3, verses 2 through 7. Paul wrote there, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For, he says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Then he says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Paul wrote, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness, which is found in the law, so as to the righteousness that can come from the law, Paul says, I was blameless. I was blameless. But verse 7, he then writes, But whatever of these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Those things from his Jewish heritage that were gained to him when you consider the, the righteousness that comes through law, Paul says they're all worthless. They're all meaningless. I count them all as nothing as, as to what I can gain by being found in Christ. Paul was elite as a Jew. Peter and many of these other leaders in the early church surely had been Jews by nature and in practice before coming to Christ. Paul highlights this. He says, we're not sinners from among the Gentiles. We were practicing Jews. But then in verse 16, he says, though we were Jews by nature and not not sinners from the Gentiles, he says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed 
in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. So I want to focus for a moment on the idea of faith. It says we're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. Faith is the Greek word pistis. It is a word that means believe in the most basic sense. You all are all probably familiar with what faith is. But more specifically, it speaks of a conviction of a certain truth. Um, Thayer's Greek Dictionary said that when it speaks of faith in Christ, this word denotes a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. So when we hear this word faith in regard to Jesus Christ, it is a strong and a welcome conviction that Jesus is the Christ and he is our only hope to obtain salvation. So now faith is not merely intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died and that he rose from the grave, that he has ascended into heaven, and that that is our, the, the way that we can be saved. It's not just, just an understanding of those facts. Faith in Christ is a submitted and devoted trust that his death is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sin. That it was the death of Christ that is absolutely necessary for the removal of our sin. Faith begins with a proper understanding, a proper intellectual understanding of of these facts of Jesus. Things like the virgin birth. We have to understand that Jesus lived a perfect life. We have to understand that he died a sin-bearing substitutionary death. We must understand and believe that he rose again from the grave, defeating sin and defeating death, and that he has ascended to the right hand of the Lord in heaven. But faith does not stop with the understanding of those facts. It moves from the acknowledgement of facts to submission to and dependence upon those facts. That is to say, once you believe who Jesus is and what he did for you, your faith moves you to a life-transforming trust in who Jesus is and what he did. Your, your faith moves you to a life-transforming dependence on Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation. There is nothing else. There is no other hope to be made right with God other than to come to him by by flinging yourself upon his grace and hoping only in Christ through faith. As Spurgeon said, it's not great faith, but true faith that saves. Spurgeon said, and the salvation that we have lies not in our faith, but in the Christ in whom the faith trusts. We're justified not because we have great faith, not because we have this greater faith than any other person, but we are justified because we have genuine faith. We have genuine trust in the person of Christ. It's not that faith that saves, but it's because we have a wholehearted dependence on Jesus Christ. All of our hope is in the person of Christ. And Paul emphasizes this hope of justification by saying there in verse 16 that even we, even these Jews who who were practicing Jews, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Even, Even we who were foremost Jews have renounced our Jewish faith, our Jewish heritage. Even we have turned 
to Christ. Do you remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness through the law? In Matthew 5, verse 20, he said that our righteousness must exceed that of even the most externally righteous men of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. He said that that your righteousness must exceed theirs if you are to enter heaven through the way of your own righteousness. Now, Jesus is not obviously teaching a works-based salvation there. He is telling us that even the most fastidious law-keeping people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, even their righteousness through the law is completely insufficient to gain access into heaven. Even the most extreme righteousness, the most extreme law-keeping that you could imagine falls completely and utterly short. So there is but one hope of salvation. That is faith in Christ, faith in the Savior, faith, again, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we contend earnestly for the faith, this is the message that we must proclaim. That salvation is by faith alone. That salvation is in Christ alone. So the second heading that we want to look at then is that not only are we justified by faith alone, but as Paul clearly outlines here, we are justified apart from the law. Justified apart from the law. And this picks up in verse 16 and goes all the way through verse 19. We we see in verse 16, Paul begins this contrast. He, He says that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And then he says, he, we believe in Christ so that we may be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because, at the end of verse 16, by the works of the law, no flesh, no man can be justified. There's nothing that any one of us can do to earn our way into heaven. There, there's nothing that our flesh can do to make us righteous. Paul said in Romans 3, verse 20, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law, Paul continued, only comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not a means or a mechanism for for saving faith, a means or mechanism for salvation. The law serves only to reveal our sin. And we'll look at that more as we get into chapters 3 and 4 especially, but the law has no power, no ability to save. Salvation is apart from works of the law. Paul continues in in verse 17, and he says that even if we were seeking to be justified in Christ, if, if we had then been found sinners, he asks the question, is Christ then a minister of sin? He responds to that rhetorical question, may it never be. Absolutely not. And there's a connection in verse 17 with verse 15 that we see. He talks about the idea of being found sinners. He used that term sinner back in verse 15, speaking of the pagans, of the Gentiles. And he says, so we, if, if we who were Jews have been found sinners now because we renounced our Judaism, does that then make Christ a sinner? Think about it. Paul was saved by direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came to Paul, revealed him to Paul. He revealed himself to Paul, and then even sent Paul out with the message that Paul was to proclaim. And so Paul is saying, 
if that is what Jesus did, and I am found to now be a pagan, then is Christ a minister of sin? Because this is the message of Christ. This is the way that Christ saved me. And so if so, you, you Judaizers, if that is true, then Jesus must have been a minister of sin because this is the message of Christ. And then, of course, Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. There's no way under heaven that Jesus is a minister of sin. So Paul's logic here is, in effect, bulletproof. His argument that he makes to Peter is that Peter coming back under the authority of the law would make Jesus a sinner. If Peter came back and said, well, you know, I've decided that we do need faith in Christ, but we also need some of these works of the law, if that is now the gospel that Peter is preaching, Paul says, well, then, Peter, you've made Jesus a minister of sin because he told me directly to come to him by faith and faith alone. So do you see the importance of the right understanding of the working of the law and the gospel of salvation by faith alone and apart from the law? If we declare that submission to the law is a prerequisite to salvation, if we say that we need faith and works to, to be saved, we've missed the point. We've made Christ a minister of sin. Now, that does not mean that we don't preach that you show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, faith transforms. Faith changes you. Faith draws you into a state of being a constant and consistent repenter of sin. And if you're constantly and, consi and consistently repenting of sin, you will be being made more like Christ. If you are truly repenting of your sin, you hate that sin and you will commit that sin less and less because you have the Spirit of God in you and the Spirit of God is going to make you more and more like Christ. So Paul continues on then to verse 18. He, he's spoken of the absurdity of making Jesus a minister of sin. And then he, he kind of plays off of that again and, and refers back to himself. He says, for if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. So he says, in one way you make Jesus a sinner if you require law keeping. And then if I'm going to come alongside you or allow you to do that or even join in with you in this type of legalism, then I prove myself to be a transgressor as well. He says, I will be resubmitting myself to the law. Paul was an elite Jew, a Hebrew among Hebrews. But then he renounced all of that. He rejected the law as a means to salvation. And so he says, if I were to rebuild what I've once destroyed, I would, one, be a liar, and I would, two, be a transgressor. I would look like an absolute and utter fool. Calvin here, he wrote that Paul declares that in preaching the gospel, he had restored true righteousness in order that sin might be destroyed. Calvin continues, it was therefore the highest degree improbable that the same person, Paul, who destroyed this sin would renew its power. It's completely ludicrous, completely unreasonable to think that Paul would come and completely cut down 
and cut himself away from the works of the law and then just a few short years later come back and rebuild what he had then destroyed. Jesus came that sin and death would be defeated. Sin and death were defeated through Christ because of his power and his work at the cross. And to enlist oneself under the authority of the law, to to hope in the power of the law, would completely undermine the work of Christ at the cross. If we require that, as he goes on to say in verse 21, we nullify the grace of God. We say that it is unneeded, that we can attain salvation through another means. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, there at the end of the chapter, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would we rebuild this law that is the power of sin? And sin being the sting of death. Sin being what death brings about and when sin resulting in death. Paul says, why would I rebuild that which has been destroyed? So rather than Coming back under the law, Paul says in verse 19 that through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You read that and you might run like I did a hundred different directions. What does Paul mean? Through the law, I died to the law. Well, MacArthur had a, had a good illustration here. And I want to be clear that, that This is what MacArthur said. He said, if a man is convicted of a capital crime and is put to death, then the law has no more claim on him. He has served his penalty. He has paid his debt to society. Therefore, even if that man, MacArthur said, were to rise from the dead, he would still be guiltless before the law. The price has been paid for the crime that he committed. And so, so the law would then have no claim on his life. MacArthur then compares that to our life in Christ. He says, so it is with the believer who dies in Christ to rise again in new life. That believer is free forever from any claim that the law has on him. The believer has paid the laws to man when he died in Christ. Christ fulfilled the penalty of the law on our behalf. The debt to the law has been paid to Christ. We no longer must pay that penalty. So through the law, because Jesus had to fulfill the law, through that fulfillment of the law, we now die to the law. The law loses its claim upon us. The law loses its power over us. So again, back to that idea from 1 Corinthians 15. The power of sin is the law, and the sting of death is sin. And so when we die to sin by being united to Christ, the power of the law is completely and utterly broken. So again, this is the message that we must proclaim when we are contending earnestly for the faith. We could proclaim that we are justified by faith alone, and fully and completely apart from the works of the law. Then that brings us to the final point, the final heading that we want to see in verses 20 and 21, and that is, and and this is kind of the, the crescendo, the crowning jewel of this passage, that we are justified through unity with Christ. Verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So again, Paul's argument in this passage I think it really follows the ultimate path of logic. He compares and contrasts these two ideas. Salvation, justification according to faith and not according to the law. He gives the positive and negative results and relations to those things. And then he finally comes and hits this crescendo. You're saved by faith apart from works. And you're saved, you're justified because you're united. Because you have become one with Christ. So let's flesh this out a little bit in detail, and this is really where a lot of our personal application will come in. We have the broad applications of these are the ways that we must proclaim Christ as we contend for the faith, but this is where it gets really personal when we think about our union with Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Think about what Paul said to the Romans. Romans chapter 6 comes up a lot through Galatians. And in verses 6 and 7 there, Paul wrote that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. So the old self was captured and captivated and held captive by sin. In some twisted sense, the the old self was held captive by the law in the very law that reveals our sinfulness. There's some way that it's almost like watching watching a train wreck happen. You just can't look away, and, and when you're under the bondage of the law, you just can't pull yourself away from it. It reveals your sin, and yet somehow, because you're under the bondage of sin and the law, you love to see and to know that law because you're darkened in your understanding. But now, as Paul makes very clear, we are crucified with Christ, and the old self is gone. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he said, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old, he said, has passed away, and behold, new things have come. What does it mean that the old has passed away and new things have come? Well, as Paul continues on, He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and the new coming is that it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So when you die to sin and self, when you're made alive with Christ, it means that you have new desires because you're alive in Christ. It means that you have new devotions, you have new affections, And all of those things serve to come together to evidence your new life in Christ. So ask yourself, as we want to apply this, we must apply this to ourselves. How does my life evidence by my desires that I have new life in Christ? Do I desire the old things of sin in the flesh? Or do I desire to think and to dwell and to look and to to dwell upon those things that are good? and holy, and just, and right. What, what are my affections? 
Do, do I love the things of this world? Do, do I love to, to have the, the high places at the dinner table? Do I love things like money and toys, cars, a nice house, whatever it may be? We all love different things. Do I love the things of this world or are my affections drawn completely Christward? Do, do, have I died to that old self that is totally consumed with things that are passing away? Have I died to that and I long for that which is of eternal good? What am I devoted to? Am I devoted to Christ? Am I devoted to his word? Am I devoted to his people? Or am, am I devoted to something else? Am I devoted to the things of this world? Am I more devoted to my job or to my favorite sports team or to my favorite hobby than I am devoted to spending time with the Lord in his word than I am to spending time gathered together week to week with God's people? If you have been crucified with Christ, as Paul said, it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And if Christ lives in you, your devotions, your affections, and your desires will be transforming. They will be being made more like those of Christ. And so Paul then continues on to say, The life which I live now, I live in the flesh. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul would later write that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But then he'd also say to be absent from the Lord is to remain in this earthly vessel that we live by faith in the Son of God. Turn back with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses there that, that, that talks about this, where Paul wrote about this. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 6. There he wrote, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are of good courage, I say, to pre- and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So this life that we live now by faith in the Son of God is a life, Paul says, where we make our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be found pleasing to him. Okay, so how do we find ourselves being pleasing to him? If you want to flip and turn, or you can just listen as I read, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 3. There again, Paul, the same author, he writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. The life we live by faith, we live with our ambition to be pleasing him. And Paul says, this is how you walk and please God. And he said, this is just as you actually do walk and that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this 
is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul goes on and talks about some of those areas of sanctification. But he says, this is how you fulfill that ambition to be pleasing to God. You excel more and more because if you are in Christ, you are already living according to Christ. And you must excel more and more by being made more and more like Christ. Paul then says that that we live this life, we live this kind of life by faith in the Son of God at the end of verse 20 in Galatians 2. We live this by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So what drove Paul's life of faithful obedience? It was devotion to Christ. We live this life in faith because of him who loved me and gave himself up to me for me. Paul was once a devoted keeper of the Old Testament law, but he says, now I'm devoted to Christ because Christ poured out his blood on the cross so that I could be forgiven of my sin. His life that was was devoted to obeying every detail of the law to to the best of his ability is now a life devoted to keeping every detail of the law because he loves Christ. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul says, I do love God, therefore I am going to keep his commandments. I walk by faith because he loved me and gave himself up for me. So ask yourself, has the world been crucified to me? Have I been crucified to the world Is my life so joined and hidden with Christ that the pleasures of the world are dead to me? Is my life so transformed in Christ that I am dead and useless to the world around me? If those who are evil and those who find great pleasures in the world find a lot of use in you, maybe it's because you're not actually crucified to the world. Does the order in the course of your life give evidence of a heart that is wholly devoted to Christ. For these things are true of the one who is justified because he is unified with Christ. You are, you die to yourself. You are crucified with Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. You live by faith because he gave himself up for you. Paul then wraps up in verse 21 with this. With this great and very clear statement, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Dear friends, if you believe that you can be justified by anything that you do, by by any works of the law, any amount of good works, any means other than through Christ, then according to Paul, you nullify the power, the grace and the work of God through Christ. Again, MacArthur said that there are two pillars of the gospel. There are the grace of God and the death of Christ. When you consider the gospel as God's grace at work through Christ, those are the two pillars of the gospel. And it is these two pillars that legalism destroys. The person who insists that he can earn salvation by his own efforts undermines the foundation of Christianity, and MacArthur says he nullifies the precious death of Christ. 
if you seek salvation by anything other than coming to Christ in faith alone, you reject the death of Christ. Now remember the context of this explanation of Paul. Peter was suddenly living as a Jew. He was living as one under the law. And Paul makes it so clear that Peter, or if we would have anything other than God's grace justify us in Christ, that we have rejected and voided and nullified the work of Christ. This is why it's so important, friends, that we get the gospel right, that we truly understand what is and what is not a gospel issue. Because if you add anything to God's requirement, and God's requirement is salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, if you add anything to that, you have rejected Christ. Dear friends, that is of eternal significance. If we don't truly understand what are and what are not gospel issues, you run a reckless danger of getting the gospel wrong. If you get the gospel wrong, Paul says you nullify God's grace. You nullify the work of Christ. So to wrap this all together, thinking all the way back to even verse 11 of Galatians 2, Consider again this overall context and, and what Paul is saying. He has defended the truth of the gospel in two ways. He's defended the truth of the gospel by opposing falsehood, by opposing, revealing, and rebuking the hypocrisy of Peter. And how he revealed and rebuked that hypocrisy was by proclaiming the truth of the gospel. So this is how we defend and proclaim the gospel. We must defend against error while never getting so caught up in that defense that we lose sight of the positive proclamation of who Christ is and what he did. And this is so critical in our day. There are so many professing Christians who will be completely outraged by those who identify and rebuke error. There are so many who claim the name of Christ, but then as soon as you stand up and say that, that this is wrong, or, or this addition to the gospel is heretical, they will lose their minds. They, they will be filled with anger and rage. But in the same way, there are those whose lives revolve around polemics, those whose lives revolve around strife and, revision, and division and finding error and sin or extravagant living or an unfaithful life of a professing believer. And our duty, friends, as we wrap up, our duty is to fight against falling into a ditch on either side of the road. We're called to walk on, on the straight and narrow path, to, to enter by the narrow way through the narrow gate. So that means that there are landmines on either side of that. And, and in this context, the landmines can be this idea of one side, people say, you don't ever stand up against anything. You know, this person says they're Christian, so you better not publicly stand against their public false statements. Then the ditch on the other side is that you have these, these people who just go looking for a fight every day and at every turn. So how do we guard against that? How do we walk the straight and narrow? Well, we must do as Paul has done, as he has exemplified. That is that we fix our eyes upon Christ. We pursue Christ as our great treasure, our great prize. We do rebuke and refute error and hypocrisy. But we do that while we also proclaim Christ. Those things must be done together. 
Simply stated, you avoid ditches. You think about this driving illustration. You avoid ditches by actively and steadily staying in the middle of the road. Paul has shown us how we stay in the middle of the road. You refute error and you proclaim the gospel and you do them both. And you do them together as often as, often as you can. That's why Twitter is not a good place to fight battles because it's real hard to refute an error biblically and in the same tweet, in a clear way, present the gospel. No social media is good for that. So we must strive to avoid the ditches by staying on this narrow path, by always refuting error and always proclaiming and defending the truth of the gospel. So may we do that in the power that the Lord grants, the power that the Lord gives by his Holy Spirit who works within us. May we do that to the end that he is glorified in how we live. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you.